Okay, so we're not going to be in Ezekiel tonight. And um, since Jackie called me Sunday night and said, can you preach on Wednesday? Hopefully this will be a good message. (laughs) Um, Tonight we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. We're going to focus on verses 19 through 31. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to that chapter, Luke 16, 19 through 31. We're going to talk tonight about hell. And uh, that's not a really popular topic, I know. But it's an important one. And so in Luke 16, 19 through 31, we find one of Jesus' parables. um, and, And it's in Luke 16, and it's in a string of parables that actually start in Luke 15. And if, and they kind of seem like they're jammed together. They kind of seem like it's just one parable after another with a few little side trails in between. But when we take the time to understand what's going on, they become clearer. And that's, that's funny how that works with the Bible, isn't it? We oftentimes come to the scripture and we want to rush through it and we don't take time to really think about what it's saying. So it's important then to know the context. And in this part of Luke 16, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples and the Pharisees. Uh, Just before telling this story, Jesus sums up everything that he has ever taught the Pharisees about the law, the gospel, and true righteousness. And he does this by making three short points. So I'm going to back up to verse 16, Luke 16, 16. And, And the first point that he makes is that the old covenant is giving way to the new. In verse 16, he says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. The threats and the punishments of the law were being answered once and for all by the gospel and by the sacrifice of Christ. The way was wide open for sinners to enter the kingdom, and they were already pressing in. But... If you, like the Pharisees, insist on measuring your own performance by the law, then your case is hopeless. Jesus here is telling them that the old covenant is giving way to the new covenant. Why does he tell them this? Because of the second point he makes, which is in verse 17. He says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. The law's demands and threats are relentless. The law is unforgiving. The law can only condemn. It's not possible for any of us to live up to the law. It's not possible for any of us to be saved by the law. But still the law remains. Jesus then hammers home his third point. See, the Pharisees' interpretations of the law were made to make it seem easier to accomplish. They had all kinds of little shortcuts and and things that they could do to skirt around the law. Uh, And they had not even begun to understand how demanding and inflexible the law really is. And thus, they were misleading the people. By the way, they, they were particularly good at making the law easy on themselves. For example, during that time, They allowed a man to divorce his wife for almost any reason. And so Jesus says, 
everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So Jesus here is teaching that the law judges not only what others see, but also what others don't see, the attitude of your heart. The Pharisees' concept that you could earn your way into heaven by obedience was a damning delusion. And it's frankly a delusion that's popular today. We have many, many uh, religious groups who believe that you can earn your way into heaven, that you're saved by your good works, and the Bible just does not teach that at all. So after making these points, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, some people teach that this parable is about the dangers of misusing your money, and that's certainly true. The love of money is a trap that we all should work hard to avoid. For some of us, that's not hard to avoid because we just don't have money. But remember, it's not the possession of money, it's the love of money. And even those of us who don't have money oftentimes love it and spend way too much time thinking about it and seeking it. So that's certainly a part of this parable that we have to be careful about what we do with our money. But the main point of this parable is to highlight the hopeless horror and the awful truth of eternal damnation and the existence of hell. Now, I got to be honest with you, if there was one teaching in the Bible that I could take out or never speak on or teach on, it would be the doctrine of hell. We naturally recoil from the thought of hell. It violates our sense of right and wrong. We ask, how can a loving God send people to hell? And not only is hell something that we don't like to hear about, but we oftentimes don't even want to consider it. Nevertheless, we must take this teaching seriously. And so let me ask you a question here today. Do you struggle with the concept of hell? I'm surprised at the number of believers who think that everyone is eventually going to be saved. I'm surprised at the number of people who claim the name of Christ and think that at some point in eternity there's going to be another chance for them to be saved. So if you are struggling with the concept of hell, let me give you a couple of reasons to accept it. First, Jesus taught it and he believed it. In fact, he spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Matthew 7, 13 through 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He also, in Matthew 13, 49 through 50, says, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And in Luke 12, 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so you can see that there's a good case, and these are just a few scriptures that I pulled out. There's many more. There's a good case in scripture for the, for the existence and for us to believe in hell. 
But if you still aren't fully convinced, let me ask you this question. Why did Jesus die? If there's no hell and all we face is death, what was the point of his, of his death, of his sacrifice? He died to save us from the wrath of God, rightfully ours because of our sin. God's wrath is poured out on the sinner in hell. One of my favorite writers, Oz Guinness, writes this. He says, for some, hell is simply a truth realized too late. The problem is this. We recognize the doctrine of God's grace. We all want grace. We all want mercy. But we oftentimes don't want to believe the truth of his judgment. In fact, God's judgment is the very first part of his character that's denied in Scripture. In Genesis 3-4, the serpent says to Eve, You will not surely die. God had told Eve that if she ate from the fruit of the tree, she would die. And, and the serpent denies that truth. And we have been confused and denying it ever since. So it's true, until we recognize the depth of our sin and the reality and the danger of hell, we will not understand our need for a savior. Let's take a look at our text today. Starting in verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have, the Moses, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This parable deals with contrasts. Heaven and hell, death and life, torment and comfort. Because the focus is on the misery of a man living in hell, it's a deeply disturbing story. I challenge you to go back and, and read through some of those things. You know, he's tormented and, and in anguish of the flame. He wants one little drop of water off someone's finger to cool his tongue. This is, 
This is not a depiction of a pleasant place. But Jesus had a gracious reason for teaching this to the Pharisees and to us. He's warning of the need for repentance. Hell is a very real place, and real people go there. The word of God often repeats the truth that he will punish evildoers with everlasting punishment and by everlasting fire. The Bible describes hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a place of never-ending pain. These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let me pause here to say again that I don't like the idea of hell any more than any of you do. And certainly Jesus is not out looking for people to send to hell. But many believers and preachers who know and believe the hard truth that Jesus taught in this parable remain totally silent about it. And I think because of that, there's a lot of confusion, especially in our society, about the existence of hell. And not teaching it, not talking about it, is exactly what Satan wants us to do. So today I have two points I want you to understand from this parable. And the first one is this. People who wake up in hell will be surprised. Now, you may think, oh, hold on a second there. You're stretching this point a little bit too far. But think about it for a moment. Before believing... Did you ever seriously believe that you were headed for hell? Did you even think about it? What Did it ever even enter into your mind as a remote possibility? Sure, you might have joked about it, but I know I never thought it was true. Before becoming a believer, I didn't even think heaven was real, much less hell. <clears throat> There's a popular preacher named Joel Olstein who says, People don't need to be reminded of they are sinners, they already know. And another preacher who I really like, Bodie Bauckham, says this, no they don't. And he's right. Because here's what happens. We think that we're not sinners, and I'm not talking about people in church, but believers right now, uh, unbelievers right now. Unbelievers think, first of all, they don't think they're sinners. And if they do think they're sinners, what happens is they see the serial killer on TV and they say, at least I'm not like that guy. So I don't have to worry about hell. Sinners not only don't believe they're going, excuse me, sinners believe, don't believe they're going to hell. And the rich man was no exception. Look at how the story describes him. He's dressed in purple and fine linen and he lived it up every day. Purple was a very expensive dye and it was uh, something that was reserved for royalty or for the very wealthy. He was powerful and wealthy and respected and he was exactly the kind of person who, as the Pharisees taught, would wind up in heaven. He was Jewish and a religious man. We know this because he addressed Abraham as father and, father, and Abraham responds to him as son. Most of those listening to Jesus would have expected that this was a man who was greatly blessed by God. He was not a man who expected to be in hell. The, the people of the time believed that 
The wealthy were blessed by God and the poor were cursed by God. <clears throat> Lazarus, on the other hand, is exactly the type of person people believed was headed to hell. He was destitute. He was probably crippled. Notice the text said he was laid at the rich man's door and he was covered with sores. And these sores are so awful and so disgusting that the dogs came and licked at his sores. This doesn't sound like a guy headed for heaven, does it? The Pharisees and their disciples would see such suffering as proof that Lazarus was cursed by God. The shock of this story is the great reversal. The beggar who longed for a breadcrumb and seemed so repulsive gets the high seat of honor in heaven. And the man who enjoyed every earthly privilege, the one the Pharisees so respected and wanted to be like, goes to hell, where he is humiliated, abandoned, without hope, begging for a drop of water. Notice also that although the rich man must have been initially surprised at being in hell, he doesn't protest or ask for mercy to be released. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 somebody made a mistake here. He doesn't ask, Abraham, why am I here? All pretense and self-delusion have been removed from him. He is under the full weight of his guilt. He completely understands his position and he knows he, de he deserves to be in hell. And so it will be for everyone who wakes up in hell. The initial shock will be replaced by a deep understanding of your position, an utterly hopeless, eternal, pardon me, eternal weight of sorrow and regret that will never, ever end. Now, I don't think we, we spend enough time thinking about the seriousness of this. I think we have a tendency to, to not read deeply into these passages and we have a tendency to not talk about them and teach them. And so the rich man asks for just a moment's relief, but that relief will never, ever come. He appeals to Abraham for a drop of water, but the answer is no. He's had his chance in this life and now it's too late. Next, we see the rich man ask Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his brothers. Now, I want you to catch this here. This gives you an idea of the attitude of this guy's mind. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his brothers. The implication here is that his brothers would recognize Lazarus. They probably walked over him just like the rich man did when they visited their brother. They must have seen him outside the rich man's house. Otherwise, his warning wouldn't carry any extra weight. The point here is that the rich man still sees Lazarus as someone beneath him, someone to be ordered around, someone to do his bidding. <clears throat> you see, people in hell don't get better. Hell cements the character and the destiny of the sinner forever. Revelation 22.11 says, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. <clears throat> and that brings us to the second point. And that is simply this. 
you don't get a second chance. After asking Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his brothers, the response is, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What Abraham is saying here is, let them read the scriptures they have and seek understanding from God. It is a testimony to the sufficiency of scripture and the power of the word of God. Abraham is saying, you are in hell forever, not because you lacked information, but because you ignored the message you received. The only way his brothers would escape would be to listen and hear that message and repent and believe. And the same is still true for us today. Jesus heard people ask for signs all the time. In Matthew 12, after a string of miracles, the Pharisees asked, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. His everyday miracles weren't good enough for them. And we still do the same thing today. We have the solid testimony of Scripture, and yet we still want to see a sign. The Bible says, that our earthly lives are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our time on earth is extremely short. 70, 80, if we're lucky and in good health, 90. The rare person lives to be 100. When you consider 100 years in the span of, the, of time, in the span of eternity, it is a wisp of vapor, isn't it? Perhaps the greatest lesson to learn from this story then is that when death comes knocking on our door, there's only one thing that matters, our relationship with Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, 26 says, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? The truth is, if we wish to live apart from God during our time on earth, he will grant us our wish for eternity as well. The believer, I think, also needs to remember the command given to Ezekiel, which applies to us today. This is Ezekiel 3, 17 through 19. It says, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live. <clears throat> that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. We must remember that hell is not only a reality for us, it's a reality for everyone. And what they believe about it doesn't change that reality one little bit. When we view sinful people as lost, and I have to confess, this is a struggle for me. In, in the culture that we live in today, sinful people are, are vocal, and they're shouting about their sin, and they're proud of their sin, and they, they you know, give awards for it, and and I mean, the, our country is literally calling good evil and evil good. All you have to do is open a newspaper or turn on the TV or look at the internet. When we view sinful people as lost, 
we will begin to have compassion for them. They don't yet recognize the danger that they're in, but we do. And God has called us to be a warning to them. But if you take nothing else with you tonight, please remember this. One day, each one of us will face death. And after death, your place is determined. You will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. The choice is yours, but you have to make that choice now. Not 5,000 years in the future or sometime in eternity. You have to make that choice here while you're alive on earth. <clears throat> you have the information you need. Right here, right now, here it is. You may not have all the answers to all your questions. That's okay. I still don't have all the answers to all my questions. I have no idea how the temple measurements in Ezekiel mean anything at all, which is why I'm not picking that up. <laughs> but you have enough information, enough information, and enough solid information to take that first step of faith. The questions will get answered later. That first step of faith is putting your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ, confessing and repenting from your sin. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. So let me encourage you today, if you're not a believer, don't wait. None of us are promised tomorrow. And tomorrow may be too late. Don't be someone who wakes up surprised. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we could have tonight in, in fellowship and, and in studying your word. And we thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace. And we confess that all too often we don't look uh, deeply enough at the, the difficult things of Scripture. And I pray that you strengthen us so that we can dig in and ask you to teach us, ask your spirit to help us to understand but most of all, God, I pray that no one makes that hesitating step, that no one stops and says, I'm just not sure I can put my faith in Christ. I pray that your spirit would draw people to you, that they would say, okay, I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. And God, help us as we look around this crazy world of ours Help us to see sinners as people who are lost. Help us to see sinners as people who are hanging by a thread over the mouth of hell. And help us be people who love them and teach them and bring them to you. Lord, we are so thankful for this church and for your ministry and work here. We're grateful for your mercy and your grace. And it is our true desire, Lord, to glorify you in everything we do. Help us 
to be people who do this. We thank you, God, for all that you give. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.